Um, Luke 2, 25 through 38. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then as a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Amen. Thanks, Alana. So, obviously, we're in the season of Advent. And this year, during the season of Advent, the thing that we have been talking about, or maybe the theme that we've been talking about, the thing we've been centering on, is that Advent is a season in which we celebrate and anticipate God's gift of himself to the world. It's a pretty standard Advent message, that God gives themselves to the world in their Son, Jesus Christ. That's what we celebrate, it's what we gather around, it's what our imagery is, it's what the festivities all revolve around, God's gift of himself to the world. But in a gift story, which is Advent is a gift story, a story about a gift being given, there are two sides to that narrative. And often we focus pretty heavily on the one side, the the side of the giver, the side of the gift being given. But there is another side to any good gift story, which is the story of the gift being received. For a gift to be given, it has to be received. That's the other side of the story. And the truth is, no matter how good the gift is, no matter how valuable the gift is, no matter how much intention I put into buying a gift or making a gift, no matter how much I spend on it, how much time I place in that gift, I can do the most valuable, important, and benevolent gesture of gift giving possible. I can give you the gift, but if you don't take it, kind of doesn't matter. As valuable as a gift is, it is somewhat dependent upon a person receiving the gift a person taking a gift. Gift-giving is kind of weird that way, that once it leaves my hand, it's out of my control. I can't make you open a gift. That would be very awkward. I can't make you appreciate a gift. 
I can't make you use a gift. I can't make you even think about a gift after I've given it to you. You probably have had this experience where you give someone a gift, you show up at their house, and you see it collecting dust on a shelf, and you're like, obviously we valued this differently. (laughs) I can't make you do anything with the gift. Once it is left the giver's hand and entered into the world of the recipient, it's now a new story or the second part of the story. What does the receiver, what does the recipient do with the gift that is being given? So there's always two sides to a giving story. And that's what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, and we'll continue to today. But there's also another kind of equation or another piece to any gift-giving narrative. So you have the moment the gift is given, you have the receiving of the gift, but there's also this like weird middle space in between there, which we could just call waiting. Right? If you've bought a gift right now, and you're going to celebrate Christmas with gift giving, and you've already bought a Christmas gift, then you are in that waiting period. You've bought the gift, your kid or your loved one or your significant other might know they're about to receive a gift, but they haven't yet received it. They are waiting for the gift. When you're a kid, waiting for a gift is the worst. Right? My family, they would start to like put Christmas presents under the tree, I think very customary practice, which is like a really delightful experience when you're a kid because you're like, the anticipation is building, but you're also like, this is unnecessarily tempting. This tree of Babylon. Right? You're like, why are you tempting me this way? Waiting is a hard thing to ask a kid to do, but that's the in-between space between a gift being given or a gift being purchased and a gift being received. We wait for the gift. We wait to open the gift. We wait to experience the gift. And if waiting is hard for kids, I actually think that waiting is significantly harder for adults. Because we are well trained and catered to impatience. In so many ways, our world just revolves around our impatience. It is built on urgency and trains us in immediacy, which is a miracle if you are trying to microwave a burrito that was supposed to go in the oven. But it makes understanding Advent a very difficult Thing because Advent is the story of a long-awaited gift. The whole thing of Advent is waiting, longing, expecting, and hoping for something to arrive. Because we rarely wait for anything, because we are rarely required to wait for anything, because our world caters so much to immediacy, we rarely have to wait. And so then the message of waiting for something, long expecting something, long hoping for something, or as the text says today, eagerly anticipating something, doesn't really make a lot of sense to most of us. We have not really had to eagerly anticipate or long for something. So then that second side of the gift-giving story doesn't really make a lot of sense to us. How do we receive a gift that we don't really believe we need to wait for when much of life isn't about waiting? Advent is a story of waiting, but it is hard for us to understand that when we do so little waiting. 
In Luke chapter 2, the text that we have had read for us today, we meet two characters who are marvelous characters. We don't know much about them. We don't see much about them in the rest of the story. But they are marvelous characters who spend their lives waiting. The first character in this story is named Simeon. And in verse 25, we learn that he eagerly anticipates the restoration of Israel. Some translations use consolation or comfort, that he eagerly anticipates the consolation or the comfort of Israel. And in each case, regardless of which word you use there, the notion behind the word is that Israel has experienced pain. The world has experienced some kind of pain, some rupture. Last week we talked about it as a misalignment from love and God's intentions for the world. And so Simeon longs for the world to be made right, for Israel to be comforted, for Israel to be consoled, for the world to be made whole, Israel to be restored. We don't know a lot about Simeon's specifics or his details, but I don't think it's that hard for us to imagine why a Jewish man in the ancient Near East would long for restoration. Israel is subject to Rome. They're a vassal nation of a conquering empire, and the current Israelite government is a puppet kingdom established by Rome. And the whole thing, if you're a Jewish man, feels like a mockery of your story, your history, your people. Your religious system has been so disrupted by the same kind of conquering and controlling force. And so everything in your world, your social, your historic, your familial world feels disrupted by Rome, by the powers that be. So Simeon longs for restoration. He longs for healing. He longs for things to be made whole. And he is given this very interesting promise in verse 26. It says, The Holy Spirit revealed to him that he would not die before he saw the Lord's Christ, the hero, the Messiah, the Savior. We don't know how long Simeon lives. There's no, like, evidence telling us how long he lived. But most church tradition says he's old. If you see, like, pictures of Simeon, there's always a huge beard, which can happen when you're young, but probably old. And that paints a very fascinating picture of this person. He's a person who longs deeply for the world to be made right, and he has been given this promise that it will be, and that he'll get to see the person who's going to make it right, which I just think leads to this strange tension that Simeon would have to live in. Not a bad tension, but a weird strange tension to know that there is a person coming who's going to make the world right, but not yet. And so now I live in the in-between space, waiting unknowingly, waiting but unsure. The second character is a woman named Anna. And we do know a few more details about her than we do about Simeon. Luke tells us that she is very old. She never leaves the temple, but she prays and fasts daily. 
and likes him. And it says that she looks forward to Jerusalem's redemption. Redemption can also mean liberation. So similar kinds of hope. Like Simeon, she's hoping for the people to be liberated, for sin to be lifted, for Rome to be overthrown, for worship to be restored, for life to be made right for the subjugated and marginalized community. She wants liberation, wholeness, healing. But unlike Simeon, we learn a detail about Anna that that adds some weight to this story. It says that she was married for seven years, and then her husband died. And she has lived as a widow ever since. It is fascinating whenever the writers of the Bible choose to include a detail like that. Somebody's getting an amber alert. I got mine at like 6 a.m., so. It's interesting when the Bible includes a detail like that. And Luke doesn't tell us why that detail is being included. He doesn't say like, here's why I want you to know this about Anna. Here's the other important information that I would like you to be aware of. He doesn't say any of those things, but I think we can infer a bit about why Luke includes this detail. And I think it's because of this, that for Anna, this prayer of redemption is personal. Simeon, it's personal in many ways because he's a Jewish man living in a subject empire. But for Anna, it's not just that her people have suffered the loss and misalignment of a broken world. It's not just that the religious institutions are misaligned. It's not just that her social system is misaligned. No, no, it is deeply personal to her that the world is broken and misaligned. She knows what it means to be lonely. She knows what it means to have her heart broken. She knows what it means for sin to be a reality that wreaks havoc in the world around her. These are not just theological concepts or abstract ideas, ethereal notions or theology that we do in a safe corner of the room. No, for Anna, they are a lived reality. She has suffered the weight of something. And so when she goes to the temple every day and prays and fasts, it is out of an actual anguish, an actual desire, a deep need. For Anna, she waits for redemption. Yes, for her people. Yes, for Israel. Yes, for the world. She's got skin in this game. So she waits for her own redemption, her own healing, for her own heart to be made whole. These two characters are just defined as people who wait. This is kind of the whole thing we know about them. They're fascinating in that sense. They are people who long for something so much, who hope for something so much, that it empowers this long waiting, this patient endurance that brings them to the temple daily to fast and to pray. To wait for this promise that is unexpected or unknown or unsure. And honestly, that is really hard for me to get my head around, that they wait this way. I think there's a few reasons that it's hard for me to get my head around how they wait. I think 
one reason it is hard for me to understand this kind of waiting is that the truth is, I rarely need to wait for anything. I think that's true of most of us in this room, that our lives are marked by an immense kind of privilege that does not require us to wait or long or hope for something in the same way that Anna or Simeon does. It's not true of everybody. And sometimes there's moments where our lives are disrupted and all of a sudden we are called into waiting when a friend is in the hospital or a child is in the hospital or we're waiting for news on pregnancy. There's moments where life is disrupted. And you're like, oh, no, no, I am waiting now, eagerly anticipating. But for most of us, our lives are safe, comfortable. So we may want something, Wanting is different than needing something or longing for something in the same way that Anna and Simeon do. So the kind of waiting they do doesn't make any sense. There's this really beautiful quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who dies a martyr, understanding the concept of waiting. And when talking about Advent, Bonhoeffer says this, Not everyone can wait. Not everyone can wait. Neither the sated nor the satisfied can wait. Not everyone can wait. Neither the sated nor the satisfied. The only ones who can wait are people who carry restlessness around with them. You hear that? The only ones who can wait are those who are truly restless. Thus, Advent can, cele- can be celebrated only by those whose souls give them no rest, who know they are poor and incomplete, and who sense something of the greatness that is supposed to come. Hmm. Waiting is hard because we don't actually believe we need to wait for anything. For others of us, waiting is hard because the anxiety of our lives demand urgency. So some of us, we don't wait because we don't really need to wait. Some of us, I think, don't know how to wait because the anxious energy that fills our bodies don't allow us to wait. So we have to work, we have to manage, we have to control, we have to get ourselves busy in order to accomplish enough things because we actually don't have the ability to wait. There's too much anxiety in this moment for us to wait. And the truth is, like, we're pretty good at managing anxiety through work, at least in the short term. We've developed a lot of tools and tricks to keep us feeling in control so we can work harder, we can be better, we can learn more. All of these are different ways of managing anxiety, getting our hands in it, putting control on it. And I think for some others of us, It's not that we are untouched by the problems of the world, and it's not anxiety. It's this other third category, which is that we don't wait because cynicism has robbed our imagination of any hope worth waiting for.
Maybe that's just because life just feels like it has beat you up really bad. So what is the point of waiting? Or maybe it's that we have bought into a story, a a cultural narrative, that this is all there is. And so what's the point of hoping for something to come? There's nothing worth waiting for. There's nothing worth long-suffering for. The thing that's fascinating about Anna and Simeon to our modern world is that they somehow don't give in to any of these three temptations of waiting. Their lives are not so privileged that they cannot wait. They're deeply marked by the struggles and the suffering of the world around them. Anna knows personally what it means to be lonely. And so she has need to wait. And yet they also don't live out of the anxiety of the urgent. They are so touched by need, but somehow it doesn't lead to this kind of urgent energy. Instead, it says that Anna goes to the temple. She prays daily. She's looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. And yet somehow they also don't give in to the cynicism that would rob their imagination of any hope. She continues to come and to pray. I think it's fascinating. And I think the truth is, what is revealed to us about the way we wait or our inability to wait is what we really believe about God and what we really want. The way we wait or don't wait reveals to us what we believe about God. It reveals to us what we believe about hope. It reveals to us what we believe about faith. And it also reveals, unfortunately, what we want in this world. Waiting has a way of revealing something to us. Anna and Simeon, they want restoration and liberation. We see it in their waiting, in their Longing. They want Israel to be made whole. They want the subjugation and marginalization to end. And they want to be mended. Hearts to be restored. Lives to be restored. Their lives have been touched by the darkness of the world. And so out of a real experience, they want and need restoration. They don't have the privilege of being insulated or hiding away. No, they they feel it. This is a really beautiful quote by the biblical scholar Fleming Rutledge. She says this, Advent is designed to show us that the meaning of Christmas is diminished to the vanishing point if we are not willing to take a fearless inventory of the darkness. I love this just in the context of Anna and Simeon. Their lives know and have given a fearless account of darkness. And I think what happened is that their need and want is so large that they are unconvinced their urgent, anxious energy could even begin to solve it. And they're unconvinced that the promises of the world around them could begin to solve it. 
Anna and Simeon live in the ancient world, conquered by Rome. And Rome's promise is that it will bring peace. Pax Romana. However, that peace always comes with a sword. It always comes with an empire. And I think Anna and Simeon have lived long enough and suffered enough to see the emptiness of Rome's promises of anxious control. They've seen where that kind of urgency gets you. So instead, they wait. They wait for God's promised gift. But it is a waiting that is so hard because it gives up privilege, it gives up control, and yet holds on to hope. It's a waiting that reveals what they believe and what they want. And it is a kind of waiting that is so challenging for us because of the norms and narratives and practices that we've absorbed. I think it's why at the end of Simeon's conversation with Mary and Joseph, he says this thing that is so deeply haunting. He says to Mary and Joseph in verse 34, Simeon blessed them and said to them, This boy is assigned to be the cause of the falling and the rising of many. He's to be a sign that generates opposition so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed. Then he looks at Mary and says, A sword will pierce your innermost being too. Waiting has a way of revealing the most inner thoughts of many. Because it challenges our privilege, it challenges our control, and it challenges our hope. And it forces us to ask, what do we really believe about God and what do we really want in this world? This kind of waiting that Anna and Simeon do, it is a restless hope. It takes the darkness into full account, but it gives over to God control over the whole thing, which is so challenging for us to give up control or to give up privilege. But if we're honest, and if we take in a serious account of the darkness, as Fleming Rutledge tells us to do, then we know that's kind of the only option. Restless hope, this kind of waiting that we're invited into, I think it's really different than how I often imagine waiting. I've been thinking about waiting all week in light of Advent, in light of the sermon, and I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear waiting or you think about waiting, but the image that's come to my mind the most is driving in the snow which you might be familiar with. And uh, specifically last year, I was, uh, I was out of town and I was driving back to Salt Lake and I had to drive through Helper and then coming through Helper, I had to drive up to Soldier Summit and then through Soldier Summit into Spanish Fort Canyon, which is like not a drive that I like particularly love doing in any weather conditions. But then I was driving it and like, Coming up Soldier Summit, like from Helper, a whiteout hit. 
And I didn't see it. Like, I would have probably not driven it if I had known it was coming. But I was driving, and it was all like, oh, now I can't see anything. And it was so bad that I could only see maybe 15, 20 feet ahead of me. And what I could see was, like, semis shifting, cars, like, rolling over the side. Not rolling, like, that sounded way more dramatic. Sliding over to the side. And what I remember the most about this drive is white-knuckle gripping the steering wheel and holding it so tight and then feeling like I could barely breathe. Like you're like, you're just like holding everything in really tense and really tight. If you've ever driven through the snow, you probably had a similar experience. You just hold it as much as you can. For like two hours, I think I drove this way because of how slow we were moving all the way up through Soldier Summit, down the backside of Soldier Summit, and then into and through Spanish Fork Canyon, and the snow was continuing to hit in Spanish Fork Canyon until you kind of like got out of the elevation and into Spanish Fork, and then the snow stopped. And after like driving two hours, I finally like pulled over into like a Chick-fil-A parking lot, which is like an embassy of the church. I don't know if you knew that. (laughs) Such a stupid joke. And I like pulled over into the parking lot and just sighed. This is like huge relief, just like a deep weight off of my chest. It felt like I could breathe, and I just like let my hands go off the steering wheel and just rest for a little while and let blood come back into them. This is the image that has been in my mind all week in terms of what waiting often feels like. It feels like driving in the snow. Your body is tense and anxious, and there is an urgent energy to you that like forces you to grip the wheel, to hold your breath, to keep things tight. And you're waiting for a relief, a moment to let your breath out of your body. I think it's how many of us think of waiting. It's how many of us do wait. And because that's the feeling that our waiting has, many of us choose also not to wait, to instead cope with our own privilege or our own comfort, instead to engage in that kind of activity. But I think that Advent invites us into waiting, but into a waiting that is markedly different. Simeon says this when he holds Jesus in his hands for the first time. He says, now master, he's talking to God, Let your servant go in peace according to your word. Because my eyes have seen your salvation. The Hebrew word for salvation is yesh. And then sometimes you have like other cognates that are added to it. So it becomes like yeshua. It's also where we get Jesus' name. And the original context, all words have a story. We get their meaning from story. The original context of the word salvation comes as Israel is being delivered from slavery in Egypt. God says, I'm going to rescue you, and I'm going to pull you into a new land. I'm going to save you, and I'm going to bring you somewhere spacious, somewhere broad. That's the original meaning of the Hebrew word salvation, spacious and broad word takes on even more meaning as Israel lives their life in exile in Babylon. God's like, I'm going to save you again. I'm going to bring you back into the promised land, a place that is broad and spacious. A place where there is room. 
I love that definition of salvation, or just holding the story of salvation in your mind. Because when Simeon holds Jesus, in many ways what he's saying is, I have room to breathe. He beholds the hero, the savior, and it's like he can catch his breath and experience peace. Does it mean that he's not waiting? Advent, we believe, is the beginning of a story. Jesus has come, Jesus has inaugurated the kingdom, but we continue to wait. We live on the other side of resurrection, which is a thing that Simeon and Anna did not get to see But still, we wait for a second advent when Jesus finishes the work, when Jesus fully restores, fully liberates. But in the advent, the waiting that we are invited into is different. It is not marked by control or urgency or anxiety, but it is marked by this word salvation, room to breathe, space. Peace. Advent invites us into a different kind of waiting. Not like driving through the canyon, white knuckling the steering wheel, but the kind of waiting that ends in a gift. And that's a different kind of waiting. That doesn't mean we cover or hide the difficulties of the world around us. No, as we've said, to wait means to take very seriously the dark and the pain and the sin of our world, of our own lives, of our own hearts. And it means to wrestle seriously with our own inability to conquer those things, to overcome those things, to channel those things. But to wait in Advent also means to have hope for what breaks through the darkness. It also means to have room to breathe because of our trust in the gift. It's a different kind of waiting, one that happens centered on Jesus, who is, well, we say a lot during Advent, the Prince of Peace. It's interesting, too, in this text, it says that Simeon is filled with the Spirit. So he's waiting for Jesus to come and then he's filled with the Spirit. And I I just think this is uh, interesting as a way to send us out of here. The language in Hebrew and Greek for Spirit is almost always wind or breath. So interesting. That as Simeon waits, he does so filled with the breath of God. just means we wait differently, Missio. We wait differently with a hope that the world cannot rob in the space provided by Christ. And in this way, our waiting tells a very different story than the story that the world often tells. Like Anna and Simeon, it tells a story that looks forward to the redemption of Israel, the restoration of all things. It holds that hopefulness, that 
good news and declares it through the way that we practice, the way that we live, the way that we gather, and the way that our non-anxious waiting allows us to look towards the coming of Jesus' work. So, Missio, today on this third Sunday of Advent, would you hear the call to be invited into a different kind of waiting? One that is broad and spacious, that names the dark and hopes in the Prince of Peace. Let's pray. God, today would you help us wait? Would you help us become a people who eagerly anticipate what you're doing? Who like Simeon and Anna can show up in the temple and fast and pray and hold hope and hold the source and press back on the darkness and press back on the evil around us because our imagination has not been robbed by cynicism but empowered and fueled by the good news of you. God, would you make us a people of Advent hope? Who in our lives, our bodies, our words, our practices declare the good news of you. That you're here, that you're with us, and that you're coming again. We pray these things in your name. Amen.